Turn your Bibles with me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Thank you, brothers, for reading Isaiah 63, 1 through 9, and John chapter 6, 59 through 71. The Lord Jesus Christ showed what kind of an evangelist he was in John chapter 6. It's a wonderful chapter on true evangelism. He tortured them with the concept of bread, since he knew all they cared about were the sandwiches he had prepared for them when he fed the 5,000 in the first half of the chapter and told them they needed the bread that came down from heaven and not the manna that came down to Moses. Everyone that ate that manna died. But those that would eat the bread that came down from heaven would live forever. And they said they wanted that bread. And he said, no, you don't. You don't believe on me. You won't come to me. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. That wasn't a theological lesson for all time in all cases. That was a rebuke for that audience because he had just told them in the previous verse, you don't believe on me, but all that my Father giveth me shall come to me. There's going to be a division right now in this crowd based on how they treat me and whether they come to me or not. And then, since that analogy wasn't enough in his opinion, it was enough to confuse them, but he aggravated it by saying, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. As Brother Leon pointed out, he taught cannibalism to drive the crowd away. And when some disciples came to him and said, don't you know that's a hard saying? He said, what if I was to ascend up to heaven right in front of your eyes? You still wouldn't believe. That's the point of John six fifty nine through 63. What if I was to ascend back into heaven? You still wouldn't believe because it is the spirit that quickeneth. And the words that I speak to you are spirit. That means they are spiritual. And unless you are spiritual, you will not believe them. No matter if I was to ascend back into heaven. The point that we want to make is the Lord Jesus Christ is an all-sufficient and victorious Savior. And He must save. And unless the Father draws us to Him and opens our hearts and minds and gives us a spiritual new man inside, we will not believe any aspect of the Gospel. In John chapter 5, speaking of the Scriptures, which I have tried to emphasize to you this morning on the last Sunday of the year, that in the year 2009, everyone in this assembly that's five years of age or older ought to be in the Word of God every day, either being led through it or reading it on their own, With that emphasis on the Scriptures, let me read two verses to you in John 5. Verse 39 and 40. Search the Scriptures. Jesus speaking to the Jews. Search the Scriptures. For in them ye think ye have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. And ye will not come to me, that ye might have life. The Jews believed that they had eternal life through the Scriptures because they had the Scriptures. They could kiss the Bible like Roman Catholics do. In Catholic churches and cathedrals across the country, the Bible's being kissed today because they have it up there chained to a pulpit or in a pulpit, some big fancy church Bible. The Jews had it the same way. They would put it on a little box on their forehead. They'd strap it on their arms. And they would think that they could be saved because they had the Word of God. 
They knew verses like Psalm 147, verses 19 and 20, that God had not given His words to any other nation. They knew that. And they reveled in that nationalism rather than in obeying the words of God. Rather than looking for the sense of the words of God, they couldn't even figure out the Lord Jesus Christ being the fulfillment about the Messiah. They put their trust in the possession of the Bible. And I fear that we would ever do that. We would never say it quite that way. But I hope that we do not put any confidence in the fact that we go to a church where the Bible is open, it's read, it's preached, or that we have Bibles in our homes. What counts is that we read it, we read it with understanding, and we keep it. Search the Scriptures. Go ahead, you Jews. Search the Scriptures. You think you know the Old Testament so well. You've memorized so much of it. Search them. For in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. When you read the Bible, you should be looking for the Lord Jesus Christ, because He's found everywhere. You can't get out of our first parents in Eden without finding out about the Lord Jesus Christ, the male seed of the woman that would bruise the head of the serpent, giving Him a fatal wound. And when you get to the last book of the Bible, you're reading about the very same thing. That the man-child caught up to God and to his throne, had war in heaven, and the devil was cast out into the earth. And then cast into the lake of fire, prepared for him and his angels. Verse 40, And ye will not come to me, that ye might have life. This is the state of all men. No man will come to Jesus Christ where they can lay hold of and know that they have eternal life for the assurance of their own souls. In this chapter, we were already taught what comes first, eternal life or coming to Christ by faith. It's in verse 24, John 5, 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation but is passed from death unto life. He that heareth is a present tense verb describing hearing the word of God. And believeth, present tense, believing on Jesus, on God, having sent Jesus Christ, hath, is in possession of eternal life, shall not come into condemnation, looking at the future day of judgment, but is passed from death unto life, A perfect tense verb construction, meaning that they were born again and passed from death into life in the past, and that passing is still true in the present. That's why it's called is past. That's right there in John 5.24. So when you get to John 5.40, there shouldn't be any trouble in your minds understanding that reading the Scriptures and learning about Jesus Christ and believing on Him is not how you get in possession of eternal life, because the man that reads the Scriptures, sees Jesus Christ and believes on Him, is already in possession of eternal life. But it's how we lay hold of Jesus Christ so that we know we have eternal life. The Bible is filled with the evidence of eternal life. And for one thing, the apostle that wrote this epistle, this gospel, and wrote his epistles, wrote for the purpose of that those that believe might know that they have eternal life. He didn't write for men to find out how they can get it but how they can know they have it, by believing, by loving the brethren, by being righteous, as 1 John chapters 3, 4, and 5 are filled with that information. So when we look at the Word of God, we see the Lord Jesus Christ plainly in it, but we will not come to Him except the Father which hath sent us, sent Him draw us. John six forty four and 65. 
If you read that whole chapter of John chapter 6, you'll find Jesus explaining why there were so many that merely wanted their bellies filled with the bread He could produce by creative power versus those that actually wanted to come to Him like Peter and, were, and believed and were sure that He had the words of eternal life and He was truly the Son of God. The great difference was the power of God in their lives before that to give them spiritual life so that they could understand the spiritual things that were being said. To eat and to drink Christ, to make it very simple, is to believe on Jesus Christ. Yes. You don't need to make it any more complicated than that because that's what John 6 teaches very plainly. Catholics want to make that chapter into another evidence in the Bible for transubstantiation that you actually eat the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ when you eat their communion wafer. But Jesus said it is to believe on Jesus Christ, and you will not do that unless God the Father draws you. We are studying the subject that Jesus saves. We have an all-sufficient, victorious Savior who has finished the work of salvation, and He will not lose a single one of those that God gave Him. This is the Savior that we adore, the Savior that we love, that we teach, that we believe, that we defend, the Savior we find in all the pages of Scripture. There was no teaching to Adam or to Eve about what they needed to do to bruise the serpent's head. It was all about the male seed that was coming that would do that. If you need a field trip someday, you can take a, a, a gander through the 30 rooms of fine religious art at Bob Jones University and see all the Catholic theology there in those garish pictures and paintings that they have. And you will find pictures of Mary with her standing on the serpent's head. Because that's Catholic theology. That it's Mary who defeated the devil. But the Bible tells us the Lord Jesus Christ and the cross of Calvary, when he was lifted up, then the devil was cast out of heaven. Then the works of the devil were destroyed. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, not Mary. We have studied the fact that our salvation is by plan. God planned to save us by the everlasting covenant. That plan was complete in all the benefits that we would one day enjoy. We were assigned to the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Lord Jesus Christ was assigned to us. Remember the words, Now the God of peace, that brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. That's what we believe. When David died, his last words in 2 Samuel 23 were, That the everlasting covenant was all his salvation and all his desire, though he didn't make it grow. And that's how we want to die, with our trust in the everlasting covenant that God has made. That everlasting covenant, according to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20, foreordained the Lord Jesus Christ to come and die for us. When there was no Lord Jesus Christ, there was God the Word. But in time, in the fullness of time, he was made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. But he was assigned that job by covenant before the world began. And we were put in him by covenant before the world began, when your first father Adam wasn't even created yet. That's the everlasting covenant. That's the everlasting covenant of grace and creation and the world and all that's taken place in it and shall take place in it is but an unraveling and display of the everlasting covenant of God's grace. God chose us by name, wrote our names in the book of life, and gave us to the Lord Jesus Christ by covenant before the world began. And so we studied the fact that salvation is by plan. 
It's not by probability, it's not by possibility, it's not by potentiality, it's by plan and it's by purpose. God had a purpose to save some and he had a purpose to pass over others in order for the display of his own glory and grace through eternity. We looked at the fact that salvation is by one. Romans chapter 5 is a wonderful passage. And you all ought to know it and remember it. That when you're dealing with an Arminian or anyone that believes in some conditional form of salvation, where you have to play a part and obey, then you want to take them to verses that tell us, by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. They get so, listen, if they don't have a giver, the missionaries don't go. And if the missionaries don't go, then the prayer warriors are praying in vain back home. And on and on, you could add all those that need to obey to get one soul saved in their scheme. But the Bible says, by the obedience of one. But it doesn't just say that. It says, for as by one man's disobedience, disobedience, many were made sinners. So, by the obedience of one, shall many be made righteous. When I taught this last Lord's Day. When we have an as-so construction in English, or an as-even-so, those are two little adverbs telling us that the second clause is to be understood in the very same way that the first clause was to be understood. As, by one man's disobedience, so, by one man's obedience. And we learn so much from that. We learn so much. It doesn't matter whether you know about Adam believe on Adam, or accept Adam as your personal sin representative. What counts is God's imputation and charging of Adam's sin to your account made us sinners. The Bible tells us that in the first dispensation of the world from Adam to Moses, before they had the law of God, every man died because of Adam's one act of transgression and disobedience. That is powerful theology. That is powerful anthropology. As we try to understand the condition and state of man, it stems from our first father and the relationship that God had with him for all of us. He was our representative, and we are held guilty for what Adam did. You ate the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So did I. And we're held accountable for that. So for 2,500 years... Hardly anyone else sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, according to Romans 5. They didn't have a law given to them that if you don't do this, you're going to die. Or if you do this that I'm prohibiting, you'll die. That was Adam's transgression charged to us. That's a powerful place to go. We love the Lord Jesus Christ of Romans 5. His obedience. And what's election for? But to elect us to His obedience. Isn't that what the Bible teaches? Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why we opened this morning with Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. That the Lord Jesus Christ, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the Majesty on high. Because He had finished the work that God gave Him to do, and that was to obey for every one of those assigned to Him. And His obedience was imputed to them, so that they are righteous forever by a free gift. That's all in Romans 5, and a whole lot more. So we saw that Jesus saves. 
Jesus is not trying to save. It is nauseating to hear the popular scheme today that Jesus tried to save when he was on earth, and he's trying to save today, but in the vast majority, what do you want to make it? If you're a consistent and logical and separated Arminian, less than 1% of those that Jesus tried to save will be saved. We don't believe that. We believe Jesus saves. We have heard the joyful sound. Jesus saves. Where does it say we have heard the joyful sound? Old Testament or new? It's Psalm 89, where it talks about the Lord Jesus Christ being the son of David, being the mighty one chosen of the people to save his people. We believe that Jesus saves. And what a wonderful doctrine that is to look into the book of Hebrews and find one man obeying for us, the man, Christ Jesus. There's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And he'll save every single one that God gave him to mediate for. He will be a high priest that doesn't fail in one of those that he intercedes for. And he ever lives to intercede for us. How much more? Shall Christ by his life save us? If he reconciled us by his death, how much more of a benefit do we have by the fact that he lives at the right hand of God interceding for us? We learned that. We learned that it's not the sinner's prayer that saves. It's the Lord's prayer that saves. John chapter 17. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life. To as many as thou hast given him. So many want you to utter some little prayer, some little formula, a little recipe in order to get saved. But it was the Lord Jesus Christ that told his father, glorify thou me with the glory that I had with thee before the world was. I have finished the work that thou gavest me to do. You've given me power and authority over all flesh, and I'm giving eternal life to everyone that you gave me. That is an all-sufficient Savior. That is the prayer that works in John 17. Then we look at the purpose of God. Look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 as we jump in just momentarily where we were last Sunday about the purpose of salvation. What we are trying to do in a few sermons is to consider the fact that Jesus saves. He doesn't try to save. He saves. And we're, we're proving that from various angles That the Bible teaches about salvation. One of which is, Jesus died on the cross of Calvary for a purpose. Not a possibility. Not a probability. And not for something that was only potential. But for a purpose. Romans 8.28 It will not harm you, for some of you, to hear this again. A few words of this. Because I want you to remember Romans 8.28 in its entirety. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Everyone likes to quote the first half of Romans chapter 8, but do they like the second half as much? To them who are the called according to His purpose. God has a purpose. That purpose results in our calling. And I don't care for the moment what you make the calling out to be. All I want you to remember is that the calling is the third link in a five-link chain that's in verses 29 through 30. And if you're called, then you were predestinated. 
And if you're predestinated, then God has foreknown you from eternity. And if you're called, you're going to be justified. And if you're justified, you're going to be glorified. So from God foreknowing you in love and affection from eternity, it ends up with you being glorified in heaven. It's a five-link chain that cannot be broken because if God be for us, who can be against us? And what shall we then say to these things? Amen. That's the Word of God. But it's the purpose of God that we want to focus on. That word purpose that is in 828. We're called according to His purpose. Our calling is not offered to us. It was the purpose of God to call us. It was the purpose of God to ordain us to eternal life. Because it's the calling or the ordination to eternal life that causes us to receive the gospel as the power and the wisdom of God. What a wonderful text. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Do you want to know that you're in His purpose? Then love God. If you love God, it tells us you're the called according to His purpose. If you don't love God, it tells us you're not the called, but you're still in His purpose. You're in His purpose to be a vessel of wrath. Do you love God this morning? And the love of God, if you if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And the love of God is to love your brother. The purpose. Turn over a little... Uh, one page maybe in your Bible to Romans chapter 9. And let's continue to think for a moment about the word purpose. They say God has made salvation possible. They say God has made salvation probable. They say God has made salvation potential. But the Bible says it's according to a purpose. And in Romans chapter 9, we're told more about that purpose. As the apostle tries to explain to his audience that not all of fleshly national Israel was spiritual elect Israel, he uses several illustrations for the point. He has said in verse 6, they are not all Israel which are of Israel. He has said in verse 7 that just because they come from Abraham doesn't make them the children of God. He tells us in verse 8 that the children of the promise, oh, that's another whole section to study by promise that the children of the promise are the seed of God's elect and then he explains about Sarah she'll have a son and it wasn't Ishmael it was Isaac even though she tried to have Ishmael by way of Hagar and then he mentions Rebecca in verse 10 she had conceived by one man but she had conceived twins so we have the plural children in verse 11 the children being not yet born, neither have any done any good or evil, that the purpose, the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth, who are the called according to his purpose. You're Romans 8.28. You're getting that explained for you within the pages of the same book. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger, as it is written in Malachi chapter 1, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? The apostle knows that at that moment, the average reader who hasn't been taught properly is going to claim that would be unrighteousness. Do you know what I've heard many times? I couldn't believe in a God like that. I couldn't accept the God that you're preaching. I won't accept. I won't believe in the God that you've just described. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? What's the long answer that Paul gives? God forbid. God forbid. 
The Lord knows that the human reaction to what's just been given is not to understand it as loving Jacob a little bit more than Esau or loving Esau a little bit less than loving Jacob. It's a great gulf put between the two of them. And it's it's according to God's purpose that His purpose in election might stand. The elder shall serve the younger. Esau was the older of the twins. Jacob was the younger. And Esau served Jacob. Jacob I loved. Esau have I hated. There is no unrighteousness with God at all. We ought to look at a text like that and say, Is there unrighteousness with God for loving Jacob? Not asking, Is there unrighteousness with God for hating Esau? If we understood the holiness and justice of God better, we would be more concerned about God loving Jacob. He was a rascal. Then we would be worried about God hating Esau. It's just the way you... How how do you want to look at it? Let's look at it God's way. What's the very next verse? For he saith to Moses, in case you're wondering about this righteousness of God, Paul goes on to pull in Moses in another place. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And he exalts the will of God. God's love is set on the objects that he chooses to set it on. The world preaches as if God has to love the human race. What in the world makes God have to love the human race? There's nothing lovable about us. He didn't love the fallen angels. Why don't they ever argue on their behalf? You know that upsets me. If you're going to argue a heretical line of reasoning, then be consistent with it. And so if you want to argue for the goodness of man and God's necessity of loving us, then how about the goodness of the angels who were created higher than we are? Why doesn't God love them? Why didn't He send a Savior for them? The will of God. So it's not the will of man in verse 16 because it's according to God's purpose. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Some of you know these verses so well, you could quote them backwards to me. 2 Timothy 1.9 But we want our children to know them, and we want everyone in our assembly to know them, and we want to know them. And not only do we want to know them, we want to delight in them. And we want to delight in the Savior that they tell us about. The, the only way that we can know about salvation is by revelation. Revelation means God reveals something to us. You can't tell about salvation by admiring a bumblebee in a rose. You can't find out about salvation with a telescope looking at the stars. Salvation is revealed in God's Word. And so it reveals a Savior to us. And this is what it tells us. 2 Timothy 1.9 is Paul's getting Timothy pumped up to be a mighty preacher of the gospel and not to be ashamed of the gospel because it is such a glorious message. Who hath saved us, in verse 9, who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our own works, but according to His own purpose and grace which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. I, I do not want to be redundant, but I want you to think. It is not the purpose of a mission board. It is not the purpose of a soul winner that gets anyone in heaven. It's the purpose of God, His own purpose. Not his joint purpose, not his cooperative purpose. Oh, that hurts Southern Baptists and their cooperative effort. I wonder what they mean by cooperative. 
and cooperation. You don't cooperate with God. It's His own purpose and grace. And it was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. When He wrote your name in the book of life. He's known your name before your parents knew your name. And a lot, a lot, a lot longer before that than they ever thought of your name. This is salvation by purpose. Thank you, blessed God. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. It was His purpose. The things that fall out in the matter of salvation are according to God's purpose. Some men are saved, and not a single one that God wanted to have saved will not be saved. Not one. They'll all be saved. And any that God did not intend to save by His purpose will not be saved, no matter what you do. And we humble ourselves before that God. We say, God forbid, to any skeptical, scornful accusations of unrighteousness, as Paul did in Romans chapter 8. And if the person asks a second question, we say, Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? I like that. See, See, the Lord already knew that there were going to be skeptics and scorners. The first answer is, God forbid. The second answer is, stop asking your questions. You don't have a right to question your maker. Clay does not jump up from the spinning wheel and accuse the potter of making something ugly. I've told you before that if you were the potter, or if I was the potter, and the clay jumped up at me and said that it didn't like the way I had made it, I'd throw it into a five-gallon pail and add water. Then we could just pour it down the sewer. Hath not the potter power over the clay? Authority. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. What a glorious Savior. What does he say in Ephesians chapter 1? You know, there's a long, there's a couple long sentences here starting in verse 3 that end up in verse 14. But it says in verse 9, having made donated to us the mystery of his will, Ephesians 1 9, according to his good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself. There's our salvation. It's his good pleasure purposing it in himself. It's not the pleasure of anyone that wants to go to heaven. Listen, if you walk up to the average, 95 people out of 100, if you say, do you want to go to heaven when you die? Sure. What do you want? A five? A five spot? What do you need? Yeah, everybody wants to go to heaven. But it's according to His good pleasure who ends up in heaven. The Lord doesn't want anyone there that He didn't choose to have there. And the ones He chose to have there were predestinated to end up there. And they are His adopted children. He doesn't want any bastards in heaven. How in the world do people think that Jesus Christ is trying to save all men when the Bible tells us that He only chastens His sons? He doesn't want bastards arriving in heaven. They're children of the devil. They have their father, and guess what? I want you to know about them. They're very happy with the arrangement. They love their daddy. You know what? So did we. We walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. And we were by nature the children of... There's children of wrath. Do you think they might be the vessels of wrath 
from Romans 9? Do you think the same man wrote those two chapters, Romans 9 and Ephesians 1? And do you think he wrote the same words by the same Spirit of the living God? He did, he did, he did. The good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself. God does not save anyone because he feels sorry for them. Salvation is not a remedy for a surprise in Eden. Salvation is not a cure for an accident. Salvation is the good pleasure of his will and his purpose that he purposed in himself. The only reason he ever created Adam and Eve was for the display of his glory. That in the human race, the human family, there would be vessels made from the same lump of clay that were vessels of wrath and there were vessels of mercy. The vessels of wrath to make his power and his wrath known throughout eternity and the vessels of mercy to show the riches of his glory. That is why he created. That is the most humbling message that can ever be declared. The Lord hath made all things for himself. Yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty. Did did you enjoy singing that song or was it a burden to you? Were, Were you thinking to yourself, I can't wait till we get over this song. Let's get this service going. No, no. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty. The King of creation. He created you for Himself. And He didn't ask you if you wanted to be used as one of His vessels. That's power and authority. We can hardly even... We can't describe it. I, I certainly can't describe it beyond what the Bible says. And I don't want to try. But it's hard to even imagine that kind of authority. You know, we, we teach our children. Did you ask your little brother if he wanted to go for a four-mile hike through the woods? Did you ask him before you did that? Did you ask him if he wanted to wear a green plaid shirt with green striped pants? Did you ask him that? You know, we all, did you ask? Did you ask? You know, you ask somebody before you presume on them. We all, don't we teach that as being part of graciousness and kindness? Did the Lord ask you? But I'm going to tell you something about his graciousness and his kindness. It exceeds anything we could ever do for each other. Didn't you read it in Isaiah 63? I will mention. The Holy Spirit chose all those words. I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord. They're pretty big. They deserve more than a mention. They deserve us singing his praise forever. Because our salvation is according to the good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself. Look at verse 11. Ephesians 1.11. In whom also, who is that? In you all, Whenever you read in whom, you're in Christ Jesus. It, that's Christ from the middle of verse 10. Right. Even in him, the last three words of verse 10. Then verse 11. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated... According to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Amen. Aren't those wonderful words? Let me tell you a secret about Jerry. If you were to ask Jerry what is, well, it changes. But most of the time, it's Ephesians chapter 1. Then it was Romans chapter 8. Then it was Psalm 103. He does, he, he does change his mind sometimes. But don't you? 
If I was to ask your favorite verse today, would it be the same tomorrow? Could you might, you might run into a new one? Because the Bible can be alive and fresh every day you read it. Amen. And the Spirit of God can lead you and teach you with a verse you might have read a hundred times in the past. And all of a sudden, that one feeds your soul like no other. It's wonderful. Amen. If you give the Lord one percent of the day to read the Bible, one percent, could we, should we, might we, Spend that much time on the Word of God. One percent. A tithe of a tithe. Fourteen forty. A tithe of a tithe. Could you do it? Would you do it? For verses like this? Let me, let me listen to the sound in English. The whom is Jesus Christ. In whom we also have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will. Those are powerful words. Those are words hardly preached anywhere anymore, hardly believed anywhere anymore, and by the grace of God, we believe them. Thank you, Lord. He has a will. I don't want to read about free will. I know what my will's like. I know that unless the Lord Jesus Christ by His Spirit chains me down, I'll choose everything against Him. Paul said that, didn't he? The things that I hate, I do. He said, I serve the law of sin in my flesh. But it's His will. After the counsel of His own will. He wants you to know it's His will. It's not a cooperative will. It's His own will. And He works all things especially all the things of salvation, because that's the immediate context. He works all things. And when God works, who can hinder? When God reaches forth His right arm, who can stay Him? Or even question, what doest thou? And it's according to His purpose, the God that works all things after the counsel of His own will, that we are predestinated. We are not predestinated by your purpose because you want to go to heaven. You're predestinated by God's purpose because He wants you in heaven. Praise His glorious name. Jesus Christ is that Savior. One percent of your day is 14 minutes and 40 seconds. Can you read the Word of God and give a tithe of a tithe? Can you feel really big about yourself if you were to give 14 minutes and 40 seconds a day to read the Bible? There's a lot of time. Do you know how much time you waste? I know I've been through this before. If if it takes you a long time to get to work and you do spend 50 hours at your job, there's still 118 hours left in a week. Okay, we'll go ahead and give you 8 hours of sleep a night. That's 56. But that means we've still got 62 hours in a week. Okay, you got to eat. How long does it take you to eat? Let's give you 2 hours a day for your 8 meals. So if I give you 2 hours a day, and that's 14 hours, we're down to 48 hours. You've still got 40. Well, i got to play. Okay, we'll give you an hour a day to play, children. That's seven, so we're down to 41 hours. What else? Do you, i got to go shopping, okay? I'll give you another hour a day. You know, we're down to 34 hours. 34 hours. Divided by seven days. Read the Bible for five hours a day. You say, where does my time go? That's all I want you to say from all that. I want you to say, where does my time go? I'll tell you something. God has given us something very special called time, and it's running out. You know, my hourglass has more down here than up here. 
and it's running out, and we don't use it very well. So the Bible says, redeem the time. When you redeem something, you buy it back. So how do you buy back time? It's easy. You can buy back time, or the Bible wouldn't tell us. If the Bible tells us you can buy back time, then you can buy back time. You can buy time. So how do you buy it? You buy it by giving up something else that you're doing with that time. And so you change the priorities in your life and you change the practices in your life and you get some of that time back. Do you think you could squeeze out 14 minutes and you feel like a dog now, don't you? So do I. Where are your priorities? This will feed your soul. You'll live and die in a godly, glorious way by filling yourself with the Word of God. And look at what it tells us about our salvation. Look at chapter 3 in the same epistle. Ephesians chapter 3. And verse 11. Ephesians 3.11. According to the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. There it is again. It's not a timely purpose. It's an eternal purpose. It's something God purposed in eternity before He created Adam and Eve a mere few thousand years ago. According to the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, one of the top 20 difficult texts in the New Testament is the verse before this. So let's back up and read verse 10. To the intent... Let's back up and... I'm sorry. We've got to back up so we can get the flow of this a little bit. Paul was laboring as a minister, calling himself less than the least of all saints in verse 8 that God had given him abundant grace to preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Do you know what we're reading about right now? The unsearchable riches of Christ. In what sense are they unsearchable? You cannot plumb the depths of the value of the precious blood of Christ and what He did for us. You cannot know it. You can only pray for the Holy Spirit to show you the height, depth, length, and breadth of the love of God to a point until you're filled with all the fullness of God, but you still don't know it all. Right. It's the unsearchable riches of Christ. Verse 9, And to make all men see, those Gentiles, what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. For 4,000 years, the Gentiles didn't get to hear the gospel. It's been hid. To the intent, this is the verse I want, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. Wow! That is a tough verse. To the intent, God chose to show the angels, those are the principalities and powers, the manifold, the magnificent, glorious, extensive wisdom of God by how He treated and saved the church of Jesus Christ. That is how we understand that 10th verse of Ephesians chapter 3. To the intent that now, with Jesus Christ coming and opening up everything, that the principalities and powers in heavenly places, those of the elect and holy angels, might be known, to them might be known, by the church, by the way God treated the church, the manifold wisdom of God. You know, they desire to look into these things. Does the Bible tell us that? In 1 Peter chapter 1, they desire to look into the fact that God has sent a Savior for us and saved us from our sins, though He didn't save their fallen comrades. Praise His glorious name. 
according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. This salvation of the church, which is glorious, even in the eyes of angels it's glorious, was an eternal purpose that he purposed in himself. Jesus saves. God had a purpose before the world began. He assigned you to Jesus Christ, and he assigned Jesus Christ to you. And he will not lose a single one. And every one of us will be saved with an everlasting salvation, with all the spiritual blessings that are in heavenly places in Christ, reserved in heaven for us, predestinated to an eternal inheritance. Jesus Christ is coming soon to gather together in one, all Gentiles and Jews, those in heaven, those in the earth, all of them together into one body. And we're going to serve God and the Lord Jesus Christ forever. But it was by His purpose. And that is what we want to remember. It was according to His plan. It was by His promise. It was by the obedience of one. It was by God's electing decrees. And those that love God, they are the called according to His purpose. Do you want to know if you're called? Then love God. Do you want to know if you're called? Do you love the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because 1 Corinthians one twenty four tells me, But unto them which are called, when they hear the gospel... To them, it's the power and wisdom of God. Amen. Look at the authority of God in the gospel. Look at the wisdom of God in the gospel. To have a virgin-born son come into this world that was God in the flesh, that would die on the cross, rise from the dead, and sit at God's right hand at our high priest forevermore. We have a wonderful Savior. Amen. A wonderful Savior is Jesus, my Lord. A wonderful Savior to me. Can you hide yourself in that rock? Amen. Amen. So many of us had the experience of never having any assurance of our salvation when it was dependent upon a decision we had made or a purpose we had planned or the good pleasure of our own hearts to get to heaven. But once you read about this this doctrine of salvation from the Bible, when it's God's purpose and God's plan and God's good pleasure that he purposed in himself, it gives assurance. It's amazing how some will say, well, if, if I believed in election, I wouldn't have any assurance. And I, and I scratch my head and wonder, what, what do you mean by that? You mean if your eternal destiny was dependent on you, you would be full of assurance. But if it's dependent on the mighty God, you wouldn't have any. Can we talk about your knowledge of God? Can we talk about your knowledge of yourself? You want to depend on you. And your decision and your will and your purpose for salvation, but you don't want to rest and trust him for his. Especially when the Bible says that's the way it is. Right. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.